0: Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in from wherever you are. I'm delighted to be joined today by Phil Garski, who is a Canadian spy and intelligence analyst. You have a very fascinating background, Phil. You've worked in counter-extremism as a strategic intelligence analyst with Public Safety Canada, you work for the University of Ottawa, and you also have worked in the past for the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, or CSIS. However, I won't say any more. <laughs> I'll allow you to speak for yourself, Phil. Good morning. How are you? Good morning, Larkin, and thank you for having me on the podcast. It's an honor for
1: me to be invited on it. So yeah, um, I'm obviously, I'm Canadian. I understand this is your second Canadian in a row on your podcast, so there's other an inherent bias you Irish have for Canadians, or we're just the only two people willing to talk to you during COVID? Yeah, I, I am with the University of Ottawa, uh, but I do want to stress that I, 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 I'm not claiming to be an academic. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a former spy. I worked, as you mentioned, for the Canadian Security Intelligence Service for 15 years. Uh, prior to that, I worked for Communication Security Establishment, which is Canada's signals intelligence agency, kind of like GCHQ in the UK. Did that for 17 and a half years. Uh, I was a multilingual analyst in Farsi and Arabic, and when I was with CSIS. I work as a strategic analyst looking at Islamist extremism and homegrown radicalization. I should also add that I'm the author of five books on terrorism, all focusing on either Islamist or religious-based terrorism, and if I can announce for the first time publicly, working on a sixth book right now as we speak during COVID-19, taking advantage of all this downtime, (laughs) to write what I'm hoping is the definitive look at the history of terrorism in my country, in Canada, from our creation as a country in 1867 to the present. So that's who I am. That's
0: fascinating. Good luck with the book. Um, so today we're going to discuss that area of interest that you've just mentioned, Islamist extremism. We hear an awful lot about it. I suppose we've been hearing about it quite a bit for the past five or six years. And a lot of people have strong views on it. Not everybody knows the ins and outs of it, what it actually is and what it isn't. So could you actually explain to us what, that exact question? What is Islamist extremism? Wow, that's a simple question to start off my, my,
1: my Monday morning. Um, yeah, it is a contentious term because it has the word Islam in it. And for a lot of people, the operative term, especially in the post 9 11 period of the past two decades, has been Islamic terrorism. And There's a lot of pushback by people, mostly Muslims not surprisingly, saying that Islam has nothing to do with terrorism. These are simply bad actors who, are, in fact, are not Muslim. They have abandoned the tenets of the faith. The truth is actually somewhere in the middle. So I do want to start off by saying, despite the contentions of some, and I won't go ahead and mention their names, not all Muslims are terrorists, and no, Islam does not condone terrorism, and no religion that I know of condones terrorism. But it would be uh, disingenuous and intellectually dishonest to say that there is no Islamic aspect to this particular form of terrorism, which of course is just one of many forms of terrorism. Islamist extremism is simply defined as those who happen to engage in acts of violence and justify their acts of violence using real, actual excerpts from the Quran uh, and from the Hadith, which are the sayings of the Prophet Muhammad, as well as other scholars throughout the the centuries. For those who claim there's no Islamic aspect of, of this particular brand of violent extremism, I have a very simple challenge for you. Come up with one single statement by any known terrorist group, Islamic State, Al-Qaeda, Al-Shabaab, Boko Haram, whatever. Try to get one paragraph into a statement without seeing an extract from the Quran, an extract from the Hadith, or something analogous to that. And you can't, which indicates that for these individuals, in fact, there is an incredibly important tie to their religion. Now, it's not mainstream, it's not normative Islam. But in their minds, it is actually the only valid Islam. And we can talk a lot about that later on, Lorcan, about how they actually dismiss any other interpretation of Islam. But first and foremost, it is a form of terrorism that takes its inspiration in what it sees as the true teachings of Islam. So from that perspective, we use the term Islamist as opposed to Islamic. And that's been a bit of, um, I I guess, a deal that's been struck to try to get this notion away that it's all Muslims are terrorists or that Islam has something inherently to do with it. But the bottom line is that you cannot analyze, you can't be an honest analyst of Islamist extremism and make the contention that it has nothing to do with Islam. That's, that's simply false.
0: Where did this version, the ideology behind Islamist extremism, we call it Wahhabism or Salafism, what is that and what school of thought did that emerge from?
1: Okay, you, you've raised some interesting terminology like Wahhabism and, and Salafism. I'm going to talk a lot about that. I think for most of us, terrorism really started on 9-11, right? This is the first time that most people, I'm assuming someone of your generation, probably woke up and thought, oh my God, there's terrorism out there. Terrorism as a phenomenon really dates back to mid to latter half of the 19th century. And I won't go into a long detail about what that why that is, but... The phenomenon of terrorism, as, mo- as it's understood in, in a modern te- in a modern context, really dates from that time period. The ideology that later was used and manipulated and extracted out of by Islamist extremists really dates from the middle of the previous century, the 18th century. And what happened is that, so you're looking at the middle of the 1700s, uh, this is well before the discovery of oil. This is well before the discovery of the Middle East as an important player in anything. This is sort of the well, what we later knew were the later stages of the Ottoman Empire. So a Turkish-based Islamic governance, if you will, across most of West Asia, the Middle East, and parts of North Africa. There was a movement that began in the northern part of Saudi Arabia, which of course back then wasn't called Saudi Arabia, it was called Arabia. And essentially, this was a very conservative religious movement by a a cleric called al-Wahhab. And he claimed that he wanted to take Islam back to its fundamental roots. He claimed that Islam had lost its way. He was seeing practices in the peninsula that he felt were pagan, uh, that were not grounded in good Islamic history, good Islamic jurisprudence. And he wanted to eliminate all these influences. Now, this is like a back-to-the-earth movement. We see it all the time, right? We see fundamentalist movements in, in all religions, in Hinduism, in Buddhism, in Christianity, in Judaism. What was it that made this one special? Because again, Arabia was a backwater in the 1740s. No one wanted to go. There was nothing there. This is, again, before we discovered oil. Well, what happened was that there was a local clan, a local family called the al Sauds, who basically thought this was a good idea. And so what we, what we got was essentially a, a marriage of convenience between a spiritual leader, al-Wahhab, and a kind of political power, the Al Saud family, and the two of them joined forces to essentially start dominating that part of Arabia in the beginning of the 1740s. And as years went on, they began to extend their influence throughout the Arabian Peninsula so much so that the Ottomans in Istanbul were thinking like, like, what the fuck's going on here? Uh, we don't like this. We don't agree with this interpretation of Islam. Ottoman Islam is very, very liberal, if I can use that term. And so they sent the army in to quash this this new revolt, this new rebellion by these so-called Wahhabis. We call them Wahhabis now. They weren't called Wahhabis. They call themselves al al-Muwahidun, which are the ones that believe in the oneness of God in Tawhid. They made attacks into Iraq. Um, they killed people. And so the Ottomans said "Enough, enough and they put them down. And so by 1808, 1810, this movement, this marriage of the Wahhabis and the Al-Sawoods is basically defeated and doesn't rear its ugly head again until almost the end of the Ottoman Empire after the end of the Second World War. Or sorry, the First World War. When the um, they essentially take over the entire Arabian Peninsula, and the Al Sauds become the dominant force in that part of the world, leading to what is now called Saudi Arabia, which is simply the Arabia of the Al Sauds. And to this day, you have that notion that the, the Saudis have the political power; they have the the monarchy, the, the king. All the kings have been members of the Al Saud family since the 1930s. And you have the Wahhabi clerics, which have been allowed to essentially spread their version of Islam throughout the Arabian Peninsula. And then beginning after the sort of 1970s oil crisis when, when oil quadrupled in price, in you don't you don't remember those days, Lorcan, I remember when gas went up by four times overnight uh, in the early 1970s, is that the um, the Saudis were flushed with cash. And one thing that they did was they sent their scholars all over the world to spread this form of and, and Wahhabi Islam is it's not just conservative, uh, it's intolerant, it's hateful. And in some cases, it's violent. And so we're now, you know, we're now 2020. we're now 50 years later. And there isn't a corner of the world where Saudi influence, Saudi religious influence, has not been fa- found in religious schools, uh, in religious leaders that basically hold positions of influence in Muslim countries. And it all dates back to a, a sleepy little p- p- place called Al-Diriyah in sort of cent- north-central Saudi Arabia, Arabia in, the, uh, in the 18th century. And the world's never
0: looked the same ever since. And how did they manage to gain such legitimacy, the Al Saud family? Did they claim any descendancy from the Prophet Muhammad? As you just said yourself, they only took over really in the 1930s, the late 20s, early 30s. Who were the custodians of Islam in that region before that? Because now we hear that the Al Saud family are the custodians of the holy mosques in Mecca and Medina. But if it's only, we're talking 80, 90 years ago, Surely there's a longer period of time there where people say, well, this is what Islam was like before, or at least Sunni Islam. What Saudi Arabia was able to do, of course, and you
1: mentioned it, they they see themselves as the the custodians of the two holy places, Mecca and Medina. So Mecca, of course, being the place where Muslims do their pilgrimage, and Medina, which was the city, or actually uh, Hamlet back then, uh, to which Muhammad fled when he was being persecuted by people who didn't like his version of, of a new faith. Remember that when Muhammad came around in the you know, 610s and 620s, uh, there was no Islam. He is the founder of a new faith. A prophet is never welcome in his own, in his own land. Well, that's exactly what happened to Muhammad. And they wanted to kill him. So he fled to Medina. And this is why, and then the people of Medina embraced his message. And then, long story short, I won't go into the history. Um, you know, 10 years later, he returns to Mecca triumphant. And then he establishes Islam as essentially the state religion, even though there was no state back then. So Saudi Arabia is, uh, is the home of those two places. And, you know, it's a home of pilgrimage. It's a home of scholarship. And I think it's for that reason that the Saudis have been able to claim that they are the one voice to be heard. You know, you talk about descendants of the Prophet. I mean, my God, I mean, there are what, 60,000 princes or something in Saudi Arabia, all descended from the, the original the kings back in the, in the 18th century. Uh, who's not a, a descendant of the prophet. And I don't mean to be dismissive here. I don't want to be insulting to, to Muslims that are, might be listening, but they've been able to invent a lot of facts in terms of who is who in the zoo. And I just think it's a combination of the, their geographic, uh, being blessed with geography, Mecca and Medina are in Saudi Arabia, and the fact they were flushed with cash because of, because of oil wealth. I think those are two factors enable them to speak with authority worldwide in terms of what is legitimate Islam and what is not.
0: It's very interesting and um, I suppose to go back to the period the Hashemite monarchs who are now the rulers of Jordan would have ruled the Hejaz region, western Saudi Arabia before they managed to take control of the country and we have Shia Muslims in the east of the country in the oil regions. So in modern Saudi Arabia, how prevalent and how pervasive is this version of Islam versus maybe a more moderate version of Sunni Islam and also Shia Islam? when i i lived in the region myself as you know in kuwait and in abu dhabi and i have contacts in the region and very few people would say well i'm a wahhabi salafi muslim and the sunni muslims i know would be fairly moderate so how do you distinguish between this rather extreme version and do they classify themselves as the only pure version of islam versus everybody else i think that you're right. Um, very few people, like I said, they, they use the term
1: al mawahidun those who believe in tawhid, the oneness of God. And there's a whole literature about Wahhabi Islam that I'm not going to get into. I, I don't think that most people would would categorize themselves as these as Wahhabis. I also think that most people wouldn't see themselves as particularly intolerant. And I don't think that the vast majority of people who would follow a wahhabist school of thought and you know in traditionally in islam there, there are four schools of thought and i'm not going to go into you know hanbali and hanafi i'm not going to go into the you know I'm not, I'm not a religious scholar wahhabis sort of see themselves as taking the best from all of these schools and interpreting it in a way that is best reflective of what the prophet muhammad would have wanted to do you know you know there's this term and you know they often hear fundamentalist christians say what would jesus do well, Wahhabis kind of say, What would Muhammad do? And they claim to have a monopoly on that particular market. So you're right that the vast majority of Muslims in the Gulf region are not red eyed, cursing, yelling Wahhabis uh, bent on killing people. But the fact remains is that within Saudi Arabia itself, it is the dominant school. And you have had that arrangement between the Wahhabis and the government. The Wahhabis were the ones that were. Authorized to spread Islam to teach Islam as they saw it They were the ones authorized to inflict punishment on people who were not doing the things right you've heard the, the, I'm sure you've heard the stories about the guys with the, the with the sticks going through the streets beating people who were standing too close to You know unmarried people standing too close or doing this or doing that. So it's not so much that
0: everybody
1: in the area happens to be a blood-curdling Wahhabi. It's the fact that the Wahhabis have had the influence in the education system. And, and, and this, is, this is not something I'm making up. There, there have been many studies done where Saudi textbooks have been examined for what is it they're teaching. And they're teaching an intolerant, hateful version of Islam, very exclusionary, very anti-Semitic. Into do a lot of conspiracy theories, conspiracy theories, what the Jews are all about, uh, very anti-Christian. So there's no question that the Wahhabis, the religious establishment, was, has been able to take advantage of that official sponsorship, but they also would family for, for many, many decades, uh, several centuries. And that's what I think is the important part here. Not that every Saudi citizen uh, is running down the street with a suicide belt, or that every Saudi citizen is bent on uh, you know, yelling and screaming at people who don't believe in a particular form of Islam. But when that's all you're brought up with, there's no room for debate. There, there's no way that you can bring in alternative points of view. That's what the difference is. And so it's almost like you acquire this particular version of Islam with your mother's milk. This is the only thing you've been exposed to. So what chance do you have to counter it? What chance do you have to express a different view? That's what I think has happened over the decades and has
0: led us to where we are today. Within Saudi Arabia, for Shia Muslims who predominate in the East, do they face any kind of discrimination because they live in a country that has a very absolutist version of a state religion? Oh, God, do they
1: ever. Because, you see, to the Wahhabis, uh, Shias are not Muslims. In fact, they're bad Muslims. They're called the Rafidain, uh, those who have rejected Islam. And they, they'll point to practices that Shia Muslims engage in. Uh, of course, the, the, so, you know in Shia Islam, the word imam has a very different meaning than it has in Sunni Islam. To the Sunnis, or sorry, to the Shia, the imams are these, these great leaders that date back to uh, the Prophet Muhammad, and, and they believe in much a, a bloodline sort of passing out of the mantle. They believe that Hassan and Hussein, the sons of, of uh, um, or the grandsons of Muhammad, were the ones who should have been, been given the, the authority to take, to take on Islam. Whereas within the Sunni tradition, is more of one of uh, a, thor- a sort of consensus. So when, when Muhammad died, there was a big debate. Who's going to take over? One party wanted Ali, who was Muhammad's son-in-law. He married his daughter Fatima. The others wanted, didn't like him for whatever reason. They voted on this guy called Abu Bakr. Now, Ali ended up becoming the fourth caliph, the fourth successor after, after, after um, Muhammad. When he died, the debate reopened, and Hassan Hussein, who were his sons, were basically passed over for a guy called Abu Yazid. Anyhow, long story short, you've had this enmity between the Sunnis and the Shias ever since, and the Sunnis slaughtered Hussein at the Battle of Karbala in 680 AD in Iraq, and that is set on a millennium and a half of utter hatred for many Sunnis for their Shia counterparts. Again, the Wahhabis see the Shias as engaging in non-Islamic practices, and that's that. That hatred and that intolerance has stemmed to uh, state-sanctioned discrimination against the Shias, you refer to in the eastern provinces along the Persian Gulf, which also accounts a lot for why the Saudis hate the hate Iran so much. There are other reasons because obviously Iran is a problematic state as well, but fundamentally within the Wahhabis' interpretation of Islam, the only good Shiite is a dead Shiite. And this is why you've had the violence that we've seen. The Sunnis are the majority, right? Out of, out of the world's Muslims, about 90% are Sunnis, so about 10% are Shia. And there's other smaller percentages of other other interpretations. But the Sunnis have had the, uh, the upper hand for a very long time. And uh, Wahhabis have not hesitated to use violence to, to kill Shias when, where, where they see them. And so it's absolutely part of their creed that Shiism must be defeated and eliminated as a, as a rival to the
0: more uh, representative, if I can use that term in terms of numbers, uh, Sunni Islam. You've alluded to the fact that this has gone beyond borders of Saudi Arabia at this point, this interpretation of Islam. Is it a coincidence that we have groups like Al-Qaeda or Al-Shabaab, the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant, emerging in the past few years? Can we trace that back to Saudi Arabia and Saudi oil and Saudi money, effectively? Wow. Well, Bin Laden was a Saudi.
1: <laughs> he was the son of a Saudi businessman, a very successful businessman. Bin Laden would have acquired this version of Islam growing up. So absolutely. And the fact that, you know, we had not, not just Saudi money, but again, it's the Saudi religious influence. A lot of scholars would have spent time in Mecca and Medina. They would have been exposed to this stuff. There's no question there's a Saudi link to the rise of Wahhabism. And I'll be, I'll be courteous here. I'll call it an indirect influence on the rise of al-Qaeda and other groups like that. You Look at the statements made by these groups and they're all consistent. They're all virulently anti-shia. They're all virulently anti-west They're all virulently anti-semitic. Well, where does this stuff come from? Well, they're not making it up not pulling out of their ass one morning This stuff comes from Wahhabist Islam and the one that has been spread beginning in Saudi Arabia and all over the world, you know You look at how widespread the influence is go to Indonesia. The Indonesians are really really worried because they have what are called passantran, which are Islamic schools. And the vast majority of them, or maybe not vast majority, a large percentage of them have been inundated and influenced by Wahhabi thought. So you now have Indonesia, which has the most syncretic version of Islam of any country on the planet. The security forces and the government and most Indonesian Muslims are really worried about the growing influence of this foreign imported version of Islam, which came via Saudi funding and via cler- clerics, either Saudis who were have been trained by the Saudis to go and spread Wahhabism in that part of the world. So is Saudi Arabia behind a lot of it? Absolutely. That, 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 that's, that's a fact. The more interesting question is, um, is the current Saudi you know, uh, gang of, of whatever royals trying to do anything about it? Uh, that's where I'm a little more skeptical. But bottom line is, is that if you didn't have the Saudi religious influence backed up by Saudi money in the 1970s, 1980s, you know, Lorcan, I, I, I never try to predict or unpredict history. So, you know, if this had not happened, would we be here now? I have no idea. But there's no question that the influence that they've had has had a major impact on where we are right now.
0: And as you just alluded to, there seems to be a movement towards liberalization since Mohammed bin Salman effectively took over de facto. And they've allowed women to drive for the first time. They're allowing concerts. Yesterday, we heard that they're going to ban capital punishment for minors, which I didn't even know existed. Do you think there's a pushback against this within the country, and could that have implications into the future?
1: I'll go one further. I, I don't know what to make of MBS. I'm not build man, the, the son of the current king and crown prince, and for all intents and purposes, the guy running the show, because this old man is, 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 is old. He's not doing well. You know, MBS became the world's darling a couple years ago. Even President Trump, I guess we shouldn't mention President Trump because he thinks all kinds of things, but a lot of people thought that the, that the change was afoot, that Saudi Arabia would truly become part of the 21st century, and that you would get a very different kind of kingdom with a different, very different form of Islam, as you mentioned, the liberalization opening up, getting rid of some of the barbaric laws like beheadings and floggings and things like that. I don't know, Lorcan. Is it because I worked in intelligence for 30 years? I'm I'm pretty skeptical of what I see with MBS. I, I think there's definitely the side that does point to some liberalization, but what is he really up to? I have no idea. Um, at the same time as he's introducing these great reforms and how he's going to, you know, he's going to reform Saudi Arabia like no other person has in the past. He's also jailing dissidents. He's jailing women who are challenging his edicts. Uh, he, of course, was behind the killing of Khashoggi in Istanbul a couple of years ago. Something he denies, but he ordered it. He ordered him to be killed because he was critical of the Saudi regime. He's behind the incredibly ill-fought humanitarian disaster in Yemen, which I've just read this week. appears that maybe it's getting a little better, but who knows? So what is NBS all about? I wish I knew. I have an instinctual distrust of the man. I will recognize that he has tried to clamp down a little bit, on Wahhabi clerics within Saudi Arabia? Is it, is it honest? Is it a facade? I don't know. Uh, any effort to try to lessen their influence is a good thing, but I'm simply not in the position where we're here, we're in April of 2020, to give any kind of definitive uh, report card on what MBS is all about. I, I think he is a power-hungry son. I can't wait to get, if he does achieve the throne soon, he'll be the youngest king, I think, um, since when? I mean, he's in his 30s, best of my knowledge. But is he the real deal or not? I I think the jury's still out on that one. Yeah, I'm going to plead neutrality, tending towards skepticism. I don't know if that helps you, but I I think simply the,
0: the, as they say, the the proof of the pudding is in the eating, and uh, the pudding isn't ready yet. So we'll have to wait and see. The Hajj pilgrimage is supposed to take place, I think, July or August. And obviously, with the current reality that we're living in the COVID 19, there's doubt that that might go ahead. Could that undermine the Saudis' authority within the world? On the one hand, they're being seen to take leadership and protect human life, but there could be a backlash from the very movement that they espouse in countries like Afghanistan or, as you mentioned, parts of Indonesia like Aceh. Could that go against them if they decide for the first time, I think, in hundreds of years, that the Hajj pilgrimage might be cancelled?
1: I don't know, Um, you know, there's been this big debate within many countries, um, and it's not just to do with Islam, a lot of religions are having a real struggle with COVID-19, we're seeing protests by Orthodox Jews in parts of Jerusalem, other parts of Israel who are pushing back against government orders not to congregate, we're seeing pushback by Muslim communities in Pakistan, Uh, imams and mosques are demanding that they allow to have full attendance prayer, which of course is going to exacerbate the situation from a disease, We're having Christian fundamentalists in the United States who think that they should allow to have their services packed churches because, you know, Jesus is going to protect us from the virus kind of thing. I don't know that cancelling the Hajj itself is going to have that much of an effect. Um, It might, but here's the problem. We're talking about the better part of a half century of influence that, you know, since the oil shock of the 1970s, that the Saudis have been able to send around the world and some of the places that you mentioned. That's not going to disappear overnight. It's going to take years to extract the unhelpful, intolerant, violent messaging that the Wahhabis have brought. It's going to have to be replaced by, uh, I would prefer, indigenous leaders who are going to bring back the particular version of Islam practiced in Indonesia or Pakistan or whatever that predated the Wahhabi version. But you don't remove this kind of cancer. And that's how I call it a cancer. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. Trying to over exaggerate here. It is a cancer. You're not going to eradicate it overnight. So I do think it's going to take time. We'll have to wait and see. Uh, I don't know that the the, the cancellation of the Hodge itself would be a significant event. What might be much more important is the collapse in the price of oil. I mean the Saudis are (laughs) fucked, right? I mean, you know, they they rely on oil for I don't know what percentage it is of of their economy. And if that money is not coming in, Saudi Arabia is a is a humongous welfare state. Nobody really works in Saudi Arabia. I've been there as well. Um, And if they can't, you know, keep keep feeding the the welfare beast indefinitely, you might see some instability in Saudi Arabia itself. The point I'm trying to make is that if the money's not there from the oil sector, do they have the wherewithal to keep sending clerics abroad? Do they have the wherewithal to keep sending literature abroad? Do they have the wherewithal to keep spending money to influence Islamic communities in the four corners of the world? Maybe not. So... You know, maybe if there's a silver lining to the COVID virus, and there are many negative parts of the COVID virus, maybe one is that Saudi Arabia returns to what it was prior to oil, which is a part of the world that people couldn't find on a map and nobody really cared about. But, you know, it has been the center of, of Islam because the two holy places, al Haramain, for, for 1,400 years. Uh, and, and And that's not going to go away anytime soon. But. The next few years will be interesting to watch to see what happens with the price of oil, what happens, you know, if we have several waves of the coronavirus and the effects on that. So this book is yet to be written. I don't think I'm the guy to
0: write it. It's just crossed my mind there, going back to the Hashemites. Do they have any standing within Islam as custodians or leaders of Islam? They're quite well respected in Jordan and in the Levantine region generally, the custodians of the holy mosque in jerusalem is there any kind of competition there between them or has that disappeared since the 20s
1: i really don't know that's something i've not been following in my um my intelligence career or my my post-intelligence retirement career you know history plays a big role in a lot of things right lorkhan and the fact that you had this family which was seen as the custodial power in that part of the islamic world for so long means they can certainly they can point to that. And, you know, if Islam, like as I mentioned earlier on, other religions engages in a back-to-basics, back-to-roots, back-to-fundamentals movement, you could see a role being played by the Hashemites. But uh, I don't know enough about their particular strength now or their efforts to try to regain that position as the person that, or the, the, the clan or the family that speaks for Islam. But I, don't, I wouldn't rule it out, but I, I don't think I'm the best person to answer that question.
0: And we'll finish with um, some sad news from your own country. It's quite horrific news last week in Nova Scotia, the worst uh, shooting attack in the history of Canada. Could you tell us a bit about that maybe and how Canada's coping?
1: Yeah, so about 10 days ago, there was a report of a a shooting in a central part of Nova Scotia. Nova Scotia is one of the four Atlantic provinces in Canada uh, on the East Coast, relatively uh, sparsely populated. And this particular crime took place in a very small not even a hamlet, uh, about an hour north of Halifax, which is the capital of of the province. And as the events unfolded, it turned out that there were multiple victims, multiple shootings, and uh, multiple places had been set on fire. And uh, anyway, when all all said and done, and the RCMP finally found the suspect and and, and engaged him and killed him, a little less than 12 hours later, it turns out there were 22 people dead. Um, As you said, the, the, the single greatest mass shooting in Canadian history, we're all still dealing with. We're not a country of mass shootings. Uh, One thing I'll say about Canada, we have our problems, but mass shootings isn't one of them. We're not like our neighbors of the South, where my understanding is that there's a mass shooting a day, on average, uh, this is the single greatest mass shooting since the mid-1990s, and we're still struggling to understand um, what happened and and why it happened. And as I've I've done a lot of media reviews in Canada over the past week and a half, we may never know why for the simple fact that the perpetrator is dead. And to the best of my knowledge, he didn't leave any manifesto or social media trail that said, I'm doing this because I'm mad at the world or I'm mad at my girlfriend. He did beat up his girlfriend before he went on the, on the rampage. So uh, the motive is, is still out there. Um, it may be out there forever. We may never be able to reconstruct it. As I said, in many, many occasions, we may be faced with a situation like the Las Vegas shooting of 2017, where uh, we'll never find out the motive because the guy died and didn't leave any traces behind. Bottom line is this is a, a serious uh, mass murder uh, in my country, but it's important. You know, we've been talking a lot about terrorism in this podcast, Lorcan. There is absolutely no indication that this was an act of terrorism. The RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police has come on and said so categorically. Uh, this was not a, a crime motivated by politics, ideology, or religion, which is the definition of terrorism in Canada under the criminal code. It's just a, it's a tragic act, and I think that we have to remind ourselves that not every... Act of tragedy. Not every, not any act of killing is necessarily tied to, to a terrorist movement or a terrorist individual. But yeah, we're all struggling to 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 deal with this. There's been, uh, of course, the challenge of dealing with funerals and mourning in a time of COVID, where social distancing is required. So it's tough. It's a tough. It's been a tough ten days to be a Canadian. Um, this is not something that we, as I said, we, we're we're used to. It doesn't define us. And I think we're we're just struggling with, we're trying to make sense out of it. And um, yeah, that's. Um,
0: Politically, has there been any discussion about uh, reforming gun laws? I know your gun laws are radically different to your neighbour to the south that you mentioned. Is there a proactive movement to try to prevent something like this happening again, whether it's terrorist or otherwise, to prevent someone being able to carry out an attack like this?
1: The Trudeau government
0: um, had
1: planned uh, new gun legislation in the wake of an attack a couple of years ago in Toronto where again, another attack that was not terrorist in nature and the government was drafting legislation to restrict certain amounts of firearms. We, we have a gun lobby here in Canada as well. And it's not nearly as, as powerful as that in the United States, obviously, we don't have a second amendment. There's no right to bear arms in Canada. But there are a lot of firearms in Canada and you are allowed to own certain uh, licensed weapons. There are many weapons that you're not allowed to own. Uh, so there is talk about bringing in uh, tougher legislation. The problem is we don't know what kind of firearms were used in the attack in Nova Scotia. Looks like it may have been a, a standard issue, police firearm, the, 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 the killer was, uh, he was obsessed with, with the police. He collected uh, cars and uniforms and he probably collected police weapons as well. So there is talk about making that harder to get. The problem we have as a country is that, and in, in this case as well, it looks like some of the weapons he may have used were not from Canada, I meaning they came to the United States. We have a huge issue with illegal gun imports from the United States into Canada. Many of the gangs in Toronto, for example, these weapons that are obtained from the United States. So that's a that's a, that's a border issue. That's an import issue. But whenever an attack of this scale happens, there's a often a, an immediate knee-jerk reaction to talk about legislation. I, I don't know where it's gonna go. But those firearms owners have expressed concern about this, as they always do. And you hear that phrase, this is not the time to talk about gun control. Actually, it is a time to talk about gun control. Uh, let's have a reasoned debate on both sides and see what we can do. But I'd be surprised if in the, the weeks to come. We don't see some new legislation by the Trudeau government to talk about this. The problem, of course, is that during COVID, uh, even our parliament has been suspended, and, and there's it's proved a challenge to, to have debate in parliament given physical distancing. But I think you will see some more dialogue on whether or not we can uh, do a better job at getting the wrong guns out of the wrong hands. At the same time, not making gun ownership illegal. It is it is legal in Canada to own a gun as long as you're licensed and have gone through a training program. So I guess the, the, the bottom line, Lorcan, is to sort of watch this space. This issue is not going to go away, given the enormity of the fact that 22 people were killed by a guy with a gun. That's going to make uh, the debate go on for quite
0: some time. I watched the tribute on CBC, and it was actually quite moving. It was very well done. We offer our condolences to the victim's families. And thank you so much yourself, Phil, for talking to me today. It was really insightful, and appreciate your time.
1: Thanks, Lorcan. It was, it was a lot of fun. All the best to you.
0: Thank you.